When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Top tech companies like Intel have a secret to their success. They get the best talent, reliable infrastructure, and save on costs by expanding in Ohio, the new Silicon Heartland. Learn how your business can succeed in Ohio. Visit successinohio.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Who Cares About the Rock Hall, a podcast about the rock and roll Hall of Fame. I'm your host, Joe Quazala. I know too much about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Just absolutely, my brain is poisoned, some might say. Who might say it's poisoned? Speaking of which, my co-host here with me, as always, uh, the skeptic, the voice of the people, the little devil on my shoulder, Kristen Stuttered. Hey, Kristen. Secondhand victim of poisoning. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you I really, you, you've been... <laughs> It's almost zombie-like and it's infectious. How did quality. this happen to me? I I can I mean I know how it happened to me. It's been four and a half years mm-hmm. of, of us yeah doing exposure. This show. It's called exposure. Exposure. It's happened to me, and now I have enough Stockholm syndrome that maybe I starting to identify with my captor. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. That's that's one way to put it. Uh, Kristen, do you remember what month it is? Oh God, I was I literally was thinking of this earlier. I was like. It's not it's not August. It July what my MTV just happened. Mm-hmm. We're talking about like a non-performer category, and I can't even remember what it's called. I was thinking about how annoying this must be to our listeners who absolutely know what the month they is. They go in knowing. Uh, they go yeah. in knowing, and I'm okay. Wait, <clears throat> okay. It the we're in like a non-performer category. It's like where they're inducting like the managers and the like record executives and things like that. And that is called it's not musical excellence. And it's the other one. Oh, um, influence. What did they, they so they renamed the non-performer award at one point in honor of one of the first inductees. Oh, Ahmet Erdogan. So it's stupid Augustumet Erdogan. <laughs> Augmet Erdogust is what okay. we're calling it. That's our bad pun month. I completely could not remember that at all. Okay. It's been a it's been, you know, over a week since we really recorded. Yeah, I'm not allowed. really a great excuse, but uh, yeah, Augment Erdogast, all month long, we will be talking about the non-performer category, specifically the inductees this year. And uh, let's bring in our guest. People listening can't see this, but uh, he's repping Sugar Hill Records, so that uh, will be an indication of what we're going to be talking about here today. Our music historian, writer, Jay Kwan. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, first things first. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, a bizarre institution for most, peripheral at best for many. Uh, I got to know, coming into the show, you know, you write about music. What is your familiarity and reference level for the Hall? I'm pretty familiar with it. I know some people personally who are um, inductees who have been inducted. Um, and I I am familiar with the uh, with the Hall. I, I write uh, about various genres of music, but I specialize in hip hop. And, you know, just in the last, I think, 2007 may have been the first time that uh, 
hip hop group was inducted, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, which is correct, yeah. favorite group of mine, and I know most of the people in the group. So uh yeah, very familiar with the with the hall and everything with the hall. Okay. That's you know better than most. That's, yeah, I would say you're coming in. Wow, you knew also a year that people got inducted. Like well, dang. Impressive. That's that, yes. that's kind of what I do. Yeah, I'm years and stuff around. I mean, I've actually touched the award of one, you know, I've actually touched a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame award of, of one of the guys from Raheem's award from Grandmaster Flash and Furious Five. So I'm pretty I'm pretty close to it. Okay, <laughs> wow. yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, we yeah. never have you ever touched one, Joe? No, I've I've ne I I have not. I've only seen them behind glass. I think some of them are at the museum, and then you know, all the rest are at, in people's mansions. Yeah. Uh, so, no, I have not. So that's I don't that you know we've had an inductee on the show before. So we've had this is broadening our uh, spectrum of people who have been in proximity of the actual award. Love it. Yes. So, like I said, uh, you are wearing a Sugar Hill Records T-shirt. Uh, yes. And for anyone who who knows the inductees this year knows we're going to be talking about Sylvia Robinson, the yes. founder, really co-founder with, with her husband, Joe Robinson of Sugar Hill Records. And I want to go through like her life and we can do that chronologically. But I'd like to start on a personal level with you and, you know, what Sugar Hill Records vis-a-vis Sylvia Robinson means to you. Well, in in 1979, uh, actually about to come up on an uh, anniversary, in September of 1979, Rapper's Delight, which is credited as the first commercially successful rap record by the Sugar Hill Gang, was released pretty much uh, exposing rap music to those outside of the boroughs and the tri-state area you know, up north. So I'm a Virginian. I was in Virginia, you know, a, a nine-year-old in Virginia, and I heard this record with this talking on it, talking over Sheik's Good Times, which was like the the summer hit, you know, 1979. Mm -hmm. That was the that was a big hit record that summer. And they had a line in Good Times, uh, clams on the half shell and roller skates. And that was really the that was really the the theme kind of uh, of, of of that part of the, that last year of the 70s, roller skating, video games, the mm -hmm. beginning of you know arcade games. Uh, you know, Good Times, and the song was called Good Times. And a couple months after Good Times was released, I think Good Times was released like July 15th, something like that, 1979. Uh, these guys come talking over this song, over the instrumental to Good Times. And we think that it's uh, the local radio is, is you know, just doing a joke or parody because, you know, you never heard a rap record. Those, right. in, New uh -huh. York, those in New York knew what it was. Uh, in certain parts of New York, especially the Bronx and place, you know, some of the boroughs. But as a young kid in Virginia, I'm just thinking the radio's doing this cool thing, and they play it several times a day. And it's a 15 minute record, which is unheard of. <laughs> you know, the standard because yeah. you know mm -hmm. those stations make money through advertisers. So most songs are three minutes and thirty some seconds. That's that's the standard time. But it was a 15 mm -hmm. minute record. They played it several times a day. Found out later that day that it was a record. Begged my mother to take me to the store to buy that record that had a blue candy stripe logo. No picture of the group on it. And ever since that day, every literally every record with that blue candy stripe logo, I went and bought it. Uh -huh. And, you know, fast forward to the Internet. And once the Internet became popular and this music started to kind of fade because groups like Run DMC and every decade, the rap, you know, kind of continued this gargantuan motion that it was doing. It, it swallowed up the previous decade. So I just started reminding people of what is essentially the Motown 
of records of of hip hop. So that's that's my association with it. I mean, it, it literally changed my life to the point where <laughs> somebody from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame contacted me about two weeks ago to see what kind of footage I had on Ms. Robinson. And they contacted me because her last remaining son, Leland, they contacted him and he said, check with Jay Kwan. So that's wow. how that's how much of a historian I am on Studio yeah. Records. And yeah. also it's looking like that. If if you do give them any footage, I'm sure they'll, you know, cut that into the package to talk about you. At the ceremony. Courtesy of you. <laughs> At that the ceremony. Yeah. You know, the problem is most of that stuff is, uh, you know, I'm not the a rights holder of it. They have to license it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I did, you know, I did have extensive conversation with the, with the young lady who was doing the research. And we, you know, we talked about footage that exists out there and I gave her some things that I had and they have to properly license it. But yeah, a, a credit would be, would be nice. That would be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think so. If you, even if you don't provide the clips, if you send them along the right path and they were not mm -hmm. aware of that, I think that deserves at the very least a special thanks. Oh, yeah, and honestly, our listeners will know now. <laughs> yeah, at the so, very yeah. least, you've got everyone who's uh, who cares about the Rock Hall listening right now. So, you know, they'll know. That is great. But let's uh, let's talk about obviously Sugar Hill Records is the reason why Sylvia Robinson is being inducted as a non-performer. But I'd like to talk about a little bit because I think it's worth mentioning because it's interesting her life before then you know and it's not as a non-performer really there's there's some moments that are quite significant as a performer um so yeah i i'd like to talk about you know the woman who was once called little sylvia you know who was right. you know, born in harlem in 1935 i mean on our last episode i think was that what did yeah, we that was Bob last, Merlis on our last episode stuff, yeah. i found out that that's her in that song love is strange which is a song that I know from the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. And I just, you know, think of that song as just like, that's such a different era. And now I'm seeing that that's like from 1957. Yeah, and like the 50s. This, the 50s, you know, and then she would go yeah, on to Mickey have- Mickey and Sylvia. Yeah, Mickey yeah. and Sylvia, Love is Strange. Huge song. I've uh, been covered a lot of times. Like you said, it was in Dirty Dancing, influenced a lot of rock music. In fact, it's in the Grammy uh, Hall of Fame. It's in some, one of the museums, but it had great, it's noted for its great influence on, you know, on, on a lot of rock musicians. And it's a song that really crossed over into a lot of genres and made a lot of money for her. It was, a, it was mm -hmm. in fact, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure from the research I've done and people I talked to that, that knew her, she financed her, her many labels because I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to put the car before the horse, but she ran seven or eight labels before rap music even existed. She already ran a stable of, of, record labels that specialized in doo-wop and R&B. And I'm pretty sure she funded that with the, the immense royalties she had from uh, Love is Strange, huge record. I believe it, yeah. I mean, went to uh, number one on the R&B charts, went to number 11 on the Hot 100. You know, had a second life with, with Dirty Dancing, but even at just at the time, you Definitely. know, she was- And who is Mickey of Mickey and Sylvia? M Mickey was, uh, I know he was a guitar player. She was an a multi-instrumentalist as well and played guitar, but he was actually originally her music teacher. And then they they started to collaborate and, and and put music out together. But he was originally her music teacher. Yeah, Mickey Baker was yeah, his Mickey name, Baker. guitarist. And mm -hmm. um, so she had been recording even as a teenager before then. But that was like the the big you know monstrous hit that came to define that part of her life. Yeah, she was Little mm -hmm. Sylvia on Savoy Records. Yeah, that was that was a good while ago. Yeah, Little Sylvia. 
Um, Sylvia. And then, you know, not long after the big hit, Love is Strange, you know, she started to do some solo work, started producing, and she was playing guitar on some records too. Quite a few. Um, And I, I can't remember the name of the song right off. Maybe it'll come to me. But the first big hit that Ike and Tina Turner had, she wrote. Yeah, that would be It's Gonna Work Out Fine. Yes, yes. I think it's gonna work out fine. It's, it's gonna, gonna work out fine. She wrote, she played guitar. And she actually did the ref what they call the reference vocal to show Tina, this is how I want you to sing it. So she laid down the reference vocal. It's rumored that some of the guitar parts on the record are her. I don't know if she was credited, but that's one of the first very, you know, big historical things she did that she's not known for. In addition to, I think Janet Jackson has recently been credited as the first black woman to own her own record label, which that wouldn't be true anyway, because Anna Gordy, who was Barry Gordy's sister, had her own label probably before Janet Jackson was was even born. But Sylvia even predates Anna, I'm pretty sure. So she's probably the first first uh, Black woman to own her, own her own record label and, and produce on it and things like that. So mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of history. Yeah. Uh, and there was a brief time where she left the music business. She lived in Paris. It's interesting to think about like this long career that she could like yeah. have a period where she just left and went to France and, <laughs> yes. you know, ha- had her had her break. Uh, and it didn't, you yeah. know, she still, she still spans all these decades and having done a lot well, of, and also, things, you know, France in the sixties and France in prior to the sixties also, you know, being like a, like a haven for black artists and, you know, black people to escape some of the harrowing racism of America. Right. And so she, you know, was able to get out and go on her Wikipedia. It says in 1964, frustrated with the music business, Baker moved to Paris and you're yes. like, all right. And that's just one sentence. And then they're like, in 66, she came back. Right. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> So she ate some croissants. She had a little bit of a break from the USA. Came on back. Mm-hmm. And came on back. Yeah, very interesting life she had. And then you know came back to Jersey, and that's when she's that's when she started the labels, all platinum records. Uh, and at, by by this Staying point, turbo. right? Mm-hmm. There were a lot of different. And at this point, she was with her her husband Joe. Joe Rogers, right? Mm-hmm. And Joe, you know, he was uh he was more of a you know kind of street guy, ran some nightclubs and things like that, you know. Uh, allegedly ran, you know, was a number runner. I wouldn't even say allegedly. I pretty much think that it, that's pretty much his, you know, his family knows and it had to admit it publicly. He was a number runner. And, uh, you know, for those that don't know what numbers are, it's basically uh, a kind of underground operation that's based on horse betting and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that was very popular in Harlem in that particular time in the 60s and, and a part of the 70s. But, you know, owned some nightclubs. I think he even may have managed some boxers and stuff like that. Very much the... Uh, <laughs> probably the Don King before Don King type of guy. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, she's the more meek person in, in, in the business. I'm told that, you know, he, he controlled the books and the money while she controlled the talent. She was the musician that, you know, didn't really touch the business part of it that much, but she was the producer and the talent, you know, um, so as, kind as of the creative as, mind. And he was more the business mind. It sounds the business like mind, definitely. Yeah. Cause a, a label head doesn't necessarily have to have a, creative bone in their body but sylvia was Most she, Most yeah dope. right exactly yeah it's not it wouldn't say it's typical but you know she was writing and and producing for her acts at this time and you know using her own musical mm-hmm. knowledge to kind of guide them be a mentor in addition to being you know the boss mm-hmm. exactly and like you said there and there were a ton of different you know all platinum was like the big name but there were a ton of different names for the uh, kind of sub turbo stang all 
platinum, uh, quite a, quite a few. Uh, interesting story. I don't remember the very first label she had, but the reason that they came up with all platinum was because she heard that distributors paid, you know, record companies alphabetically. And whatever name she had before, Stang or whatever, <laughs> you know, it's taking a long time to get paid. So she all platinum, you know, we, let's be first on the list. You know, yeah, right. Cool. Get yeah. that money uh, in due time. Yes. And then she has kind of an out of the blue resurgence as a solo artist in her 40s with the song Pillow Talk. <laughs> Big song, big song, very, very sexually suggestive song for what sexually suggestive was then. Today it would be, you know, like some, you know, it would be like Muppets, you know. So, yeah, yeah, right. It's for know, children. <laughs> but what was sexually suggestive then? Like, you know, what comes to mind is Donna Summer had a big disco hit called Love to Love You, Baby. And mm -hmm. it was very notable because she was doing this kind of panting and breathing. Oh. Yeah, that was very sexually suggestive at the time. Again, it would be nothing today. But uh, Pillow Talk was very much years before Donna Summer would do that. Before there was even a disco genre of music, Sylvia was very suggestive on Pillow Talk with a very soft-spoken kind of, you know, Pillow Talk is exactly what it was. Very charged song for the for that time. <laughs> yeah, 1973. It's, uh, it's early for that. You know, and that went yeah. to number three on the Hot 100, number one on the R&B chart. And she wrote it for Al Green. The yeah. Reverend Al Green. Reverend. Yeah, I, yeah, that's that's a good distinction because he was, uh, you know, because of his kind of religious beliefs, was like, I don't, I don't think this is for me. But you sound pretty good he doing it. it. He said, why, why don't you do it? You know, why don't you do it? Is what he said, and she she did. <laughs> I'm sure he wished he had done it after after the fact, but yeah. Yeah, right. There's religious beliefs aside. I'm sure he likes sure. money. Of course. Uh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> and then you know she's running these labels and you know she's occasionally mm -hmm. making music herself but by the late 70s you know things aren't going great for her the labels you know not in a good place financially yeah she's really at the point where she's about to declare bankruptcy and is is, is you know is actually you know going not not going well I, mean, I don't know if it was the decline of disco that was about to happen or just you know her, you know, she had the Moments was one of her groups, the Whatnots, the Rim Shots. She had quite a roster of groups, but just the changing time of music. You know, music used to change every few, every, you know, five or six years. Technologically, it would change. The whole sound would change. Vocally, mm -hmm. cadences, everything would change pretty uh, often in music. And just by, by 79, her labels were in trouble. She was really on the, on the brink of declaring bankruptcy. And she has a song called It's Good to Be the Queen which was after rap music. And I don't want to put the car up on the horse again, but she raps that, she actually raps herself, her whole story of why she created Sugar Hill and how bad things were financially preaching. It started back in 79. My whole dirt future was on the line. I created a brand new sensation. Blew my mind and a whole Yes, you, you, get, you get this, you know, kind of the darkness before the dawn in that story that she, that she yes. raps post 100%. success yeah so it, things aren't looking good and she goes to a party in 1979 kind of reluctantly yeah her niece's party at uh, harlem world which was a popular uh, hip-hop club and um you know of course before rap is on record you know this is very underground what they call the chitlin circuit of clubs where I won't say it's a hole in the wall, but it's just some, you know, nobody respects rap at that time. This is just something. And I'm pretty sure before before rap got popular, it was a disco club and it was, you know, had 
more popular music. But by by 1979, a lot of hip hop was going on in Harlem world. And yeah, she went to her niece's birthday party reluctantly, and she saw a gentleman by the name of Lovebug Starsky who was spinning and rhyming All star name, absolute all star name. Love Bug Starsky. Where is he now? He passed away uh, probably five years ago, but he was great. He was great. Oh. And he he was one of few who could, he, one of the few, you know, you had the DJ and then you had the MC. At, at one point, the DJ kind of did both, but not simultaneously. He would spin the records and he would rap over the records as he spun them, which is very oh, hard to do because yeah. you're keeping the rhythm, and, you know, of both. And yeah. she saw that and it was very impressed by it. But that's the first person she saw rap was Love Buzz Stars. Amazing. I think he was he was rapping over a song called Get Up and Dance by a group called Freedom. Freedom. That song is great. I mean, I, I know it backwards through because the Furious Five eventually did it and called the song Freedom. Yeah, that song, that song is really well, a lot of fun that rhythm track that rhythm track was something that they already had because starsky was supposed to rap over that she was supposed to sign starsky you know starsky uh went down to the studio to record over the freedom track and because he had a lisp she didn't like how he sounded on on, on recordings he had a lisp and she didn't she didn't like it which is funny because somebody like you know the notorious big i was just gonna say there's so rappers. many big huge influential rappers who have distinct lisps or speaking styles or whatever you know that speech impediment it adds to the flavor like you know eric mm -hmm. sermon of epmd has a really bad list cool g rap who's an underground rapper but respected as one of the best the attraction to his voice is the list but in yeah. seven yeah. nine, when, when rap isn't even on record, there's no market for it. And she doesn't know if it's going to last or not. This guy mm -hmm. with this comes along and she didn't sign him, but they still had to track for freedom. And then in 1980, as you said, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, she gives it to them. But originally it was Starsky that was going to ramble over, get up and dance by the group free. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, going to this party kind of flips a switch in her head. Very much so. And then also, funny enough, a visit to a pizza parlor uh, is also important in this story. Okay. Certainly. Certainly. So, uh, Crispy Crust Pizza, and I've actually been there. It's like a, but people like me who are really, really, you know, follow the minutia of it, it's almost like a, like like the Muslims go to Mecca as, you know, like a <laughs> passage. You go to Crispy you know, Crust? I, you know, I had to go to 1527 week where, where Cool Herc threw the first party that ignited hip hop, you know, reportedly. And I had to go to Krispy Crust to actually be in the place where this happened. So the short story of it is that Starsky didn't work, but she still had this determination that this music can work. This is going to be something. This is going to be the thing that gets me out of my financial bind that I'm in. Mm -hmm. And she, her son, her, her youngest son, Joey Robinson uh, Jr., you know, he, he's young. He has his ear to the streets. And he knows some, some guys who rap in Jersey. Jersey right over across the bridge from New York. So they, they've heard it through tapes that travel. He says, well, I know this person, I know that person. And they happen to be going into the pizza shop. I'm assuming for a slice, you know, I've talked to five or six people who were involved in, you know, something that happened that long ago for five or six people is five or six stories. Yes. I don't know if she went in looking for a uh, big bank, Hank, who was working in the pizza parlor because she heard he rapped or if they just went in the place to get a slice. What I do know is, when they went in, Hank was rapping already to a tape that he had. Reportedly a tape of a group called the Cold Crush Brothers. That's what I was told. But he was rapping. He wasn't a rapper, but he was very close to a lot of rap groups. 
and he had a tape playing. And because she just had rap on the brain, she was going to take anybody. Remember, at this point, there's no way to define who's good and who's not. It's not like, you know, you saw Jimi Hendrix and saw this guy really shredding the guitar. This is a brand new genre. So mm -hmm. anybody, could, really, there's no there's no good or bad yet. So she hears this guy, you know, he can rap. So she says, hey, look, I'm about to start a rap group. Do you want to join? And he didn't say, well, no, nah, I don't rap. You know, these are my friends. <laughs> You know, she says she's a popular, you know, I don't think Hank knew who she was, but she said she could make a record. So, hey, so he takes his apron off, jumps in the back of uh, <laughs> Joey Jr.'s 98 Oldsmobile. This is something that all six, five or six people that I talk to all agree on. You know, I always say that the people who, what you hear the most, that's where the truth lies. You know, the most, sure. the most people who tell that story, of course, that's where the truth lies. He hops in with, with the crust, uh, the, the, the dough all on his apron. I mean, he raps for, for her. And she says, you're in. And then, you know, she, she says, I can understand every word. No list detected. Yeah. Uh, you're in. Clear the bar. You're in. Yeah, that's it. You know, you, you're nice. and Hank was a big guy, you know, hence the name Big Bank Hank. He was he was he was a big guy. And he had He's a very, everywhere. He had a, uh, yeah, he, is. <laughs> he had a very robust voice. One of the better voices in, in the group, I say. And then she found two other guys from Jersey. Hank was from the Bronx. He, he was working in Jersey to, to pay off a debt. He was managing a group called the Cold Crush Brothers, and he had uh, bought a stereo system for them because they didn't have one. He borrowed money. His parents were supposedly pretty well off, so it's in the 70s to buy a whole stereo system. This is not something like you listen to a component set in your home at the time. This is a stereo system that you take out to the parks with humongous speeches, speakers to entertain the people. Mm -hmm. So it, It's like what you would think of as more like a PA now. That's exactly what it was, a PA. Thank you. So he gets this loan from his parents. He gets the PA system. And to pay it back, he's working at the pizza parlor, saying the rhymes of these guys who um, would eventually become the Cold Crush Brothers. And then when Rapper's Delight is pressed up, he, he uses those same rhymes, which caused controversy later. But again, not to put the car too, too far before the horse. She finds two other local guys in Jersey. She marries them together. She was heavily into numerology. She made a super group. She did. She did. She was heavily into numerology. And what she told them was, look, the moments were three guys, you know, um, three is the lucky number. I had great success with the moments. I'm going to marry you guys together and you're going to do big things because there's three of you. And, you know, she was right. <laughs> she was right. Yeah. So, you know, that the Sugar Hill gang is born. Yes. And were, were they technically the, the first artists on the Sugar Hill Records? Certainly. They were the first. Sugar Hill Records was kicked off. You know, Sugar, she already had the name Sugar Hill because it was a fluent section of Harlem. You know, people there were pretty well to do uh, in, in, in that Sugar Hill section. So she wanted to name the label that. But yeah, she named the group the Sugar Hill Gang, and they were the first group to record um, on that label, certainly. And is that first track, Rapper's Delight? Rapper's Delight was their first song. 15-minute record, you know, un unprecedented. 15-minute record that blew up on radio. And, you know, kind of like you said, they're, I mean, this is, it's so new. I mean, in Big Bank Hank, he, you know, doesn't necessarily, I mean, he has some, I mean, you could, you could tell me more than anyone else where some of these rhymes came from you know they weren't all original and then they did kind of get into trouble over that two things happened with that record league well one thing happened legally the other was more i guess of a question of integrity depending on who you talk to the first thing was they an early version of sampling they used the interpolation of good times by sheep well right. you know because it was so under the radar and i'm not going to say she was trying to do anything illegal but I'm sure she probably figured, look, I don't think she thought that it would go multi-platinum. I really don't think she thought that. 
but she probably thought it would do well. Hey, we'll handle the paperwork later. If, if she gets a, gets wind of it, which they probably won't, we'll talk to them about it. But you know, everything yeah. is. In How the big could this get anyway? <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, even, you know, just a sidebar, really quick. Even the groups, all of those groups were approached by different people. Other people had the idea. Uh, Bobby Robinson in Harlem, no relation to her. He used to go to these groups and try to sign them. You know, around the same time, the groups didn't think it would work. They would tell the the executives. Nobody wants to hear anybody talk over somebody else's music. The groups thought it was ridiculous. So back to your point, yeah, Hank, Hank, you know, just thinking, you know, he might get some neighborhood notoriety at, at most. And he doesn't go back to a guy named Grandmaster Cass, who was part of a group called the Cold Crush Brothers, who had never made a record, but they were considered one of the best in that Bronx group of uh, fraternity of rappers. And as you were saying, he was allegedly listening to a tape of theirs while he was at the pizza joint and also was managing them, right? Right, and managing them. So he knew he knew a lot of Kaz's rhymes because he was with, he used to be a bouncer at a club called Sparkle in, in the Bronx. And me, you know, at, at the time when I first started interviewing these guys, not really thinking about the proximity of New Jersey to New York, I was like, wow, you know, how why was he working all the way in Jersey if he was from the Bronx? And people would explain to me, well, you know, the Bronx – Bronx to Jersey is a stone's throw and he had his own car because again his parents were pretty well off for, for you know at, at the time so he was driving to Jersey to this pizza spot to work so um he he never said hey Ms. Robinson these aren't my rhymes these are Grandmaster Cass's rhymes let me make sure it's okay what he did do he went to Grandmaster Cass and he said look this lady wants to make a record and I don't have enough rhymes can I borrow some of yours and what Cass did was give him his notebook he said take whatever you want hmm. Because who knew? Why, why would He's you like, how that? far could it go? Like, <laughs> Again. Again. Everybody go? underestimating. Take what you want. So then it becomes this hit. And I'm telling you, at the time, every car that passed by, every house party, everybody with a portable radio, then Soul Train, then um, American Bandstand with Dick Clark. I mean, when you're that big, I mean, you're in the living rooms of America when you're mm-hmm. an American Bandstand. This isn't yeah. just some underground urban thing. This is America's hearing this. So, of course, at that point, the guy who wrote the rhymes is like, man, I told him to take whatever he wanted. We didn't even write anything down on a napkin or anything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you fast forward to all these decades where this record has been remade and sampled and it's gone so many times platinum. It's in kids' movies and cartoons and no paperwork was ever done. So the question there became, Grandmaster Kaz's thing was, hey, man, you should have come back and gotten me or told Ms. Robinson those were my rhymes, whatever. Mm-hmm. So to this day, Cass never had me. He's the first ghostwriter in rap, you know, yeah. not not by his own, not because he wanted to be, but he is the first ghostwriter in rap and never got a royalty check for the song because it would be his word against somebody who, you know, Hank, Hank passed away maybe seven or eight years ago. So, uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, quite a, quite a saga. Quite. Um, what I want to do, uh, there's obviously a lot more to talk about, but why don't we sure. take a, a quick break uh, and sure. we'll be back, have more to talk about Sylvia Robinson, Sugar Hill Records and all that. So we'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We hope you had a nice break. We hope over your break, you, you got- give yourself a little breeze. Give yourself a little breeze. I whatever. You give yourself a little breeze, whatever that means to you. Yeah. Even if you just- farted <laughs> hey listen there's many there's many ways to interpret there's many it. ways to give yourself a little breeze uh-huh yeah 
give your, give your been, friend a breeze. <laughs> I have been sitting here doing some kind of like side searching just while we're chatting because I'm trying to figure out where I first heard the song Rapper's Delight. And it was, I had a movie soundtrack of something and it was the Deaf Squad version. <laughs> I said it, yeah. So I went to high school in like the late 90s and I can remember having like some compilation CD. It felt like it was, I was like, was it on the Can't Hardly Wait soundtrack? Like what soundtrack was it on that the Deaf Squad version? And like, I knew every single, I would like wrap it to myself in the mirror. Uh, I knew every word of, of this song. And then I tried to do it at karaoke later that that year or whatever and I was like great rappers like I'm gonna do every single word of this whole thing it's a six minute song here I go and I get up on stage and the verses are different I didn't know anything about the Superman verse I was like what am I singing like I know what the what the rhythm is and also just like wow that's a real like you know early 2000s like white girl move who's gonna later go on to do improv is to like get on stage and be like i'm gonna do all six verses of rapper's delight and people are gonna love it these next six minutes are gonna be so great for you that compilation might have been called like in the beginning there was rap or something like that but they they all everything on there i think it was called in the beginning there was rap everything on there was a remake uh, uh, a cover version for the Def squad yeah did rapper's delight and it was a video for and everything that was a pretty big uh remake pretty big well i was obsessed with the chicken tastes like wood verse I just thought it was so funny I was like this is this is like and I'm, I just didn't necessarily understand that there was like a whole other world out there just you know you you retroactively get into things and I could you know I could take the hit on that but yes well that was a great verse that whole you know have you ever went over a friend's house to eat have you ever went over a friend's house to eat and the food just ain't no good I mean the macaroni soggy the peas almost and the chicken tastes like wood I was actually eight about to be nine um at the time when i heard it so to somebody for somebody that age even when they say you know and today it would sound like you know foolishness compared to some of the rap and it sounded like foolishness to adults back then because remember adults didn't like rapping first. you know nobody thought it would last everybody thought it was a fad but they had a line you know skip it to bebop we rock scooby-doo guess what america we love, we love you, you. So yeah <laughs> and catchy that as an eight-year-old it just blew my mind and at that moment i said i want to do what they're doing they're talking well, over music yeah, and they're making jokes about having an obsessed stomach, you know, like yeah, it's, you know, it's like yeah. silly. It's a fun, silly and, song. And like, uh, and clowning on Superman and like all that this stuff. This is it's all like, subject matter that kids can relate to. Yeah. Yeah. It was perfect for young people. And, and I do want to say, and I say this whenever I talk about that group, Big Bang Hank did take uh, Chaz's rhymes without credit. That is, that is true. Like I said, he didn't steal them. Chaz did give him his notebook and say, take what you want. And that's what he did. The other two in the group, Wonder Mike is the one who said the rhyme about the chicken tastes like wood. And mm -hmm. Master G is the second rapper, M-A-S-T-E-R-G with a double E. Master G and Wonder Mike, they were in groups in Jersey. Uh, Sound on Sound was one group. And um, I forgot the name. Oh, Phase 2 and Sound on Sound. They were in those groups. And they did rap. They rapped in their neighborhoods in New Jersey. They were rappers and everything on Rappers Alike. They wrote their parts. Those were their... A lot of the rhymes that they said were rhymes um, that they said for Sylvia doing the during the uh, audition that they had for her. So they were they were rappers. They didn't take anything. It was only Hank who did it. But historically, they've gotten this really bad rap. Pardon the pun. That you know, all oh, those guys stole rhymes. It was only one guy who took the notebook and he, he did what he's instructed to do. He took what he wanted. 
the Superman rhyme. That was Grandmaster Kaz's rhyme. In fact, when Hank says, I'm the CAS and the OVA and the rest is FLY, Grandmaster Kaz, his full name was Grandmaster Casanova Fly. And there we because go. Hank wasn't a rapper, he didn't even change it. He just spelled out Kaz's <laughs> name. And that's that's the proof that, you know, if anybody ever doubted it, you know, Kaz can always say, look, he spelled my name. And he also said, <laughs> I'm six foot one. I'm the C-A-S-N, the O-V-A, and the rest is F-L-Y. You see, I go by the code of the doctor of the mix, and these reasons I'll tell you why. You see, I'm six foot one, and I'm tons of fun, and I guess... Hank was a chubby, shorter guy. Kaz, <laughs> you know, he's six foot one. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's Kaz is rough, you know, so... But the rest of the group members were innocent of that. They had no no knowledge of it till later. Yeah, it's funny how irrefutable it is. He's literally saying oh. stats. <laughs> he's like, he's like, this is my height. This is my name. Yeah, right. this is not me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, indisputable. Oh I, my and, gosh! You know, and Kristen, you saying like, where did you first hear it? I'm like trying to think myself, and I'm looking. Like it was in the. I wedi- remember the, the wedding, wedding singer, singer too. I remember like the old lady, the granny singing it. I said hip hop. I hip it to the hip to the hip hip hop. You don't stop the rock to the bang bang boogie. Say up jump the boogie to the rhythm. That, the I think might have been my first exposure to it. I used to listen to a lot of movie soundtracks at that time. That was like how I got into older music. Was mm-hmm. I was like oh because there were sure. all those movies that were like set in the eighties or movies that had used eighties music and sure. stuff like in them, sure. and sure. so. That that that's I definitely remember hearing that for the first time, and just like in the '90s, it was like music was still quite like segmented and segregated, and like you wouldn't hear Rapper's Delight wasn't on the radio anymore. But then like the nostalgia hit, <laughs> and people were like, "Oh, but remember!" And I think it all came back into like popular consciousness in the late yeah. '90s, early 2000s. Right. I mean, I remember seeing the Kangaroo Jack trailer, and the Kangaroo himself. Wraps it. Oh, no. Kangaroo Jack. Love the jacket, Charlie. Nice. I said a hip hop. The hippie, the hippie to the hip hip hop. And you don't stop the rock to the bang bang. Boogie set up. See, that's when you know you feels did. like That's too corny. We can't do that. Yeah, it's maybe uh, gone. And that's when you know the record's making money, too. When, you, when, you, when, it's, <laughs> when it's that much into mainstream America and popular culture, you know that money's being generated from that record. Exactly. And I, I will say also, Kristen and I went to see Chic in concert mm-hmm. at the Hollywood yes. Bowl a few years ago. Uh-huh. And I know that Niall Rogers, upon hearing Rapper's Delight for the first time, wasn't super thrilled. And, you know, like, this is my music and it's, I didn't give any permission and they're making money off this, et cetera, et cetera. But what's very cool now is that in concert, when they play Good Times, they do a break where he raps along and does Rapper's Delight. Yeah, you got, it was, it was that big. You know, imagine that, you know, you had to sue a company that basically took your music without permission, but it's so big that 30 years later, you have to do an interpolation of putting it into your show because it's that, when people hear that that, that music, you kind of think of it more than you think of the lyrics of Good Times. The, mm-hmm. the lyrics mm-hmm. of Rapper's Delight are more popular than the lyrics of the original song that it was on. Like I said, the other day, um, on that anniversary, on the fifteenth of Good Times, I I put up the, the that that line I used to love, you know, clams on the half selling roller skates, and so many people who are my age who remember Good Times, who danced to it that summer, said, "I never knew that's what it said," but they know <laughs> hip hop, hip to the hip, the hip hop, mm-hmm. don't stop the rocking. So, amazing, amazing thing that is, yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, like I, of course, the frustration early on makes sense, but then when you look back and you go, nearly. 
an entire movement was born from this moment. Like it's so significant. And to know that your music was the foundation of it is like, how can you, even if it was, you know, not properly uh, compensated, how do you not look at that and not go, that's really, that's just such a cool thing. It is. And I think mo most of the people who it, it's very ironic, the, the adults who didn't like rap in the beginning, <laughs> they feared that it was going to be violent and it's, you know, they're, they're, they're speaking broken English mm. and, you know, it's, it's street and it's gutter, you know, in 1979. But look how vulgar rap is now. I mean, most of the successful rap is very, very vulgar and adults love it. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> how, how times have changed, you know, but yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, let's get back to kind of the story. Rapper's Delight is huge. It, you know, mm -hmm. kind of plants the flag for Sugar yes. Hill Records. You mentioned Bobby Robinson of Enjoy Records, and you know he was attempting to also do this, but not with the real success of Sylvia. He didn't have the arm that Sylvia had, the financial arm to promote the records. He put out some really good records. In fact, most of the the difference between Sugar Hill Records in the beginning and 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 his record label was called Enjoy Records. His story is very much like hers. He wasn't a singer, but he was a manager of a lot of R and B singers. And his label Enjoy used to be an R and B and doo wop label. He he discovered Gladys Knight and the Pips and some oh, really wow. big, yeah, put out some of their first records. And then you know he saw rap was big, and he didn't say, "Hey, this can give me all the bankruptcy," but he sure, certainly saw the cash potential in it. So their stories are kind of the same. The difference is the Sugar Hill Gang is seen by a lot of the Bronx pioneers as not an authentic group. They call them a put-together group. And a lot of the guys will compare them to, like, the Monkees, sure. which were, mm. you know, successful Pre group. Prefab. Pre right, exactly. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's the comparison that a lot of the Bronx guys put towards them. What Bobby was doing, he was signing the groups who were in the Bronx actually doing it and influencing the Jersey guys like the Sugar Hill Gang. So he's, he was the first to sign Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, the Funky Four Plus One, uh, Spoonie G, and all these guys. Then Sylvia, once she got the Sugar Hill Gang and, and that got so big, she created a monopoly. And she said, anybody that's made a rap record, I don't care how big it was, I want it. She bought the rights from Bobby Robinson because he couldn't get the records on the radio. He couldn't get those mm -hmm. records much outside of New York. They did get outside of New York, but he couldn't really push them. Sylvia, when she put a record out, because she, remember, she was an icon decades prior. Mm -hmm. She had all the radio contacts, right. especially for urban radio. So she puts a record on, she takes it right into Frankie Crocker and all of the influential DJs because of her relationships with them from her career. Right. And so that's how those artists went from Enjoy to Sugar Hill. She bought them. She, even other labels, you know, some, some more, less, less popular labels. And so Sylvia Robinson, Bobby Robinson... Not really. No relation. Only a great coincidence. Okay. So, <laughs> so it, by 1980, she had a compilation called The Greatest Rap Hits. Remember, the first rap record came out a year before. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. Greatest Rap Hits. And it had like maybe six songs on it. Um, most of them were songs of groups that she had uh, signed. But a few of them was, were groups that she had uh, licensed the music. She was a brilliant, brilliant business lady and a visionary. She knew this record. She didn't know it would be as big as it, as it is, but she just knew that this music would be huge, and especially after Rapper's Delight. And she I love that. Putting out a greatest hits one year into like the, the success genre. of a genre. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's beautiful. And she called it volume one, which showed, and it, there ended up she being knew. five volumes. The last volume came out in 85, but she called it volume one, which showed she had a plan. That's great. 
<laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's ambitious, but when you follow yeah. through it, it, it and also smart. she knew she had the reach and the industry connections to like get these records on the radio. And so, sure. yeah, she like went and like, you know, was like, Hey, if you've got a record and you want it out there, come to me, I'm the one, you know, and did some poaching, which seems like just kind of smart business for her and for the artists, you know, you want to go where people are going to hear your records. And that's exactly what she did. Everybody who was trying to rap at that time. And, and, you know, many you know, LL Cool J actually talked told me that he sent his demo to Sugar Hill before he got a record deal, before he got with Def, before there was a Def Jam, he sent his demo to Sugar Hill. I mean, that's at one point, you know, from 1980 till about 1983, where else would you send it? She she was running rap. Before Run DMC made their first record in 83, before they were doing rock music, when they first came out in 83, pre-rock, pre uh, rock and rap merging, the only place you would send your demo was was the place where you saw the rapper seemingly doing well. Grandmaster Flash is there, Spoonie G's there, Sugar Hill Gang's there. So yeah, right. And another group that I think is worth mentioning, just because of kind of their historic significance, is uh, Sequence. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. Sequence, the first simultaneously the first rap group from the South because they were from uh, South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina, and the first all female rap group, not in the history of rap, but to make a rap record. Um, they had a song called Funk You Up. And it did well. It went, I think, it went gold in like a, a, a matter of like weeks. I mean, not, not many weeks either, a couple weeks. And um, a record that was so influential that Dr. Dre and, and, and others have sampled parts of it, you know, in, in, mod in the modern day. And interpolations and samples of it, but yeah, the sequence very important. And then you know Angie Stone, who's a you know pretty popular R and B singer, um, was really mm -hmm. big in the '90s and 2000s with the, the charity called Neo Soul. She was one of the uh, members of that group uh, sequence. Yeah, and uh, you know she is, Sylvia is producing these records in addition to being the label head, but. You know, let's talk about what it meant to be a hip hop producer back then, because it's much different than you what the term means now. That's a great point. A there producer, were no computers. <laughs> no computers. That, that, that's the first thing. No computers. Mm -hmm. Even you know, even when they did Rapid Delight, it's not like they took a sampler and did it. She had a band come in that was a very good band that played it note for note, and it sounded very much like the original. But that's not a sample because wow. There was no affordable sampling technology. There was a sampler out at the time, but no, you know, not many people had it. You know, only major label art, like Herbie Hancock was using it just to sample a microsecond of a sound, but mm -hmm. you know, it, it was not affordable sampling technology. So what a producer is today, especially in rap, is somebody who makes beats. You know, they got a beat machine and they make beats. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they sample, you know, sometimes they, you know, put together their own musical piece, but it's somebody who's very hands-on now as what a hip-hop producer is. At that time, a producer of any genre, really, even a Quincy Jones who produced Michael Jackson, didn't necessarily have to play any instruments on it, but they were more of an advisor. Hey, don't don't say that for the hook. Say it this way. Mm -hmm. Let's bring in Tito Puente on that song. And she did. She had Tito Puente play on one of the Sugar Hill Gang songs. Um, a song called Sugar Hill Group. <laughs> that intro instead of having the 10 bars let's do it for eight bars hey um do another vocal take you didn't have real good energy on that one 
a producer was more like what a arranger or somebody like that might be considered today. But producing back then, you didn't have to play an instrument. You didn't have to, your voice didn't have to be on the track. But your input. You hey, didn't look. say your name before you dropped the beat. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's so funny because, you know, the, the producer back then, nobody cared who produced a record back then. You know, I was yeah. a weird kid because I would read the credits. You saw, I would mm -hmm. read S. Robinson and Jigsaw Productions. So I knew, but, you know, other kids, I would never have told them that because they would have thought, why do you know that? You're weird, you know? So nobody cared who produced the records. Now it's, you know, Dr. Dre and, you know, whoever, you know, and, and these guys are, you know, are, are stars in as much right as the uh, artists. But at yeah. this point, your name might not even have been on credited on the record as a producer. Now for Sylvia, her name was on every record. Sylvia Inc. was on every record. Even if all she did was say, hey, take that cowbell out and put this in, she was going to get a production credit. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's the kind of producer she was at the time. Even in her R&B days, like I said, of, of writing and, and, and arranging and even producing that Tina Turner and Ike Turner record. You know, even Quincy Jones, you know, he, he telling uh, Michael Jackson, hey, for Billie Jean, your intro was too long. Cut it down six bars. You know, that's what a producer did at the time. Yeah. And so she was extremely hands on. And I want to talk a little bit about, I mean, we mentioned Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, first hip hop inductees into the Rock Hall. And, you know, the, the class kind of, of 2007. I just randomly know that. <laughs> no, nope, um, I heard it at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and their their seminal work was on the Sugar Hill label. 100 percent. You know, they, they are to be talked about as much as the Sugar Hill gang. Uh, is to be talked about. Their genius and her genius are, are connected. Out of the gate, you know, I, I was impressed that you knew Freedom. Freedom was a very good record by them. I remember, you know, used to get it used to get daytime radio play, which most rap music didn't. Uh, Rappers Delight did, but most of the other songs, even some of Sylvia's songs, they would get played late at night on the weekend. But you know, not what you consider prime time play. But Freedom played prime time. Uh, it was five, you know, five MCs, five rappers, you know, one DJ, which back then the DJ didn't do anything on the records. He did right. stuff at the live shows, mm -hmm. but, you know, scratching was so, scratching and scratch mixing was so unheard of back then. She wouldn't let him, Flash, do anything on the records. But Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, you know, they had a line in one of their songs, we're going to take five, we're going to make five MCs sound like one. That's literally what they did. They traded off words between each other. They they, they shared, they harmonized. Um, they did a, ver a much more polished version of rap. Than, as much as I love the Sugar Hill Gang, they did a more polished version, and the Sugar Hill Gang would admit that, of rap than what they did. Their live show was mesmerizing, because in the live show, Flash did get a chance to scratch the records. Even making Deborah Harry of Blondie, you know, she said Flash is fast, Flash is mm -hmm. cool. When she attempted to rap in 1980 on Rapture, she paid homage to Grandmaster Flash because she used to hang around Uptown in the, in the rap club. And that's what made her make Rapture because Fab Five Freddy, who was the host of MTV Raps and did some other things, he was originally a graffiti artist. And he was like an ambassador for the uptown and downtown scenes. And he would take, he was friends with Deborah Harry and Chris Stein and the, and the people from the group Blondie. He would take them uptown to, uh, you know, he would go downtown to the Mud Club and places like that where they were playing punk stuff and, and playing rock. But he would take them uptown to where the funky four were playing at the t connection and clubs like that and she enjoyed it and she liked it so much and she told flash i'm gonna put your name in a record and he didn't believe it because remember rap at the time rap was very new i don't think the furious five had made a record yet grandmaster flash and the furious five had made a record yet and when she made her record rapture in 1981 which was the first rap record that most suburban 
people heard. You know, they mm-hmm. didn't hear rap with the and light, but start and her like quote unquote rap verse like starts with a name check for Fab Five Freddy, yeah, like mm-hmm. the ambassador, everybody. you know. Fab Five Freddy told me everybody's slide. DJ spinning, I said my my flashes fast, flashes cool, Francois Fab. She's describing what she saw that night in the club. Mm-hmm. Fab Five Freddy told me everybody's fly, which you know is slang for everybody's cool, everybody dresses well, everybody's hip. Mm-hmm. DJs are spinning. I'm saying, my my, flash is fast, flash is cool. She's telling you when when her when 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 Freddie took me to this club, this is what I saw. And then later she starts talking about aliens that are eating cars. <laughs> That's a whole other thing. <laughs> and then she's rhyming with cars with bars and candy wow. bars. Yeah, <laughs> we're just. <laughs> And she's doing a, an impromptu version of what, because a lot of rappers mm-hmm. would, would do those kind of stories, like the Superman rhyme. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it was written, sometimes it was impromptu. Hers, you can you can tell, she didn't write that down. That was off the top of her head, eating cars and go to bars. Yeah, know. it sounds like it. It really does. <laughs> the man from Mars, you go out at night, eating cars, you eat Cadillacs, Lincoln's too, Mercury's and Subaru. So, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five made a record called Super Rapping on Bobby Robinson's Enjoy Lady. Didn't do much at all. Great record, but just didn't do much. Then they go over to Sugar Hill. They make Freedom. Does very well. Still, still is a little too. It's, it's not Rabbit's Delight. You know, Rabbit's Delight has all the ingredients that would make us be sitting here now talking about it forty some years later. Freedom was a great record, just didn't have those elements. Then they made a couple other songs. She finally let Flash scratch on a record. It was called Adventures on the Wheels of Steel. And he actually did scratch his name from from the Blondie record. Flash is fast. Flash is fast. He scratched that on a record, which was a big deal because it was mm-hmm. like hearing a record on a record. My, my, flash is fast. Flash is fast. Flash is fast. He say one for the trouble, two for the time. Come on, girls, let's rock that. It was seven songs on that record. It was the first time you heard a record on a record. Blew my right. mind. You know, yeah. as a kid, I want to do that too. I want to learn what he's doing. You know, how is he scratching that record? That record became a lawsuit as well because they didn't get clearance for those songs that they used either. I bet. <laughs> I bet. But historic, you know, in terms of the... Uh, I mean, maybe the first, maybe the first record with scratching on it, if not the first one of one of the first, you know, the exposure of the idea of scratching. I mean, obviously it had an impact on you. Like people were hearing this thing that they had just straight up had never heard of. 100% it had such an impact on me that I, you know, I begged my mother to buy me some musical equipment. I was 11 in 81 when it came out. And, you know, she, she bought me what she could because that stuff was expensive back then. But my first job, my paper route, I got a paper route. At, you, you could get a paper route at 12 years old. The day I turned 12, the day I turned 12, I started my paper route and I took my money to get my setup because I wanted to do what Grandmaster Flash was doing. And my, and my story is the same as so the LL Cool J's and the other rappers and DJs out here who knew they wanted to rap and, and DJ. They saw that same Grandmaster Flash or heard that same Grandmaster Flash record that I did. The next record, though, after making a couple of minor hits, was a song called The Message. Mm-hmm. Of course, the yeah. The social commentary was injected into rap. So don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Sugar Hill Gang, you know, they had Apache, which... You've heard that if you ever seen the Fresh Prince, you know, the Apache jump mm-hmm. on it. And yeah. every sporting event, that dance you just did, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Will Smith actually, you know, many years later, repopularized that. Time's up. Time's up. 
Banshee was a huge record when it came out in, I think it was 81, 82. But when he, in the 90s, when he had his TV show, he even made it even more popular. And that's a household thing, which is another incredible thing, how, you know, these things keep getting uh, reinvented and reinterpreted and reused. So Grandmaster Flash and Furious 5, they didn't write all of the message. In fact, nobody wanted to do the message. The message was supposed to be for the Sugar Hill Gang. There was a guy named Ed Fletcher, who was part of the house band, who played the music on the Sugar Hill label. And he wrote the song, The Message. He was a little older than those guys. And it was a song that pretty much framed what Reaganomics felt like to urban people. You know, mm-hmm. broken glass everywhere, people pissing on the stairs, they just don't care, don't push me because I'm close to the edge. It was like taking a megaphone and putting it to the ghetto and saying, what do you guys see here? You know, and and that's what he wrote. And nobody wanted to do it again because it hadn't been done before. It was a slow record. It wasn't danceable. Before that, everything was danceable. They had crowd participation. Everybody say ho, all the ladies say ow, happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, party people. Party music, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So here comes somebody who's talking about the problems of the ghetto over a very slow tempo. Sugar Hill Gang didn't want to do it. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five didn't want to do it. The Crash Crew, who was another group on Sugar Hill Records, a less popular group, but they were on Sugar Nobody wanted to do it. They were very much against it. Finally, Sylvia convinced uh, one of the group members, Melly Mel, who was the front man of Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. She convinced him to do it. And uh, he had some rhymes from a previous record that he recorded with Bobby Robinson. He took that rhyme and put it on the end, which is a very iconic rhyme. A child is born with no state of mind. That that verse, which is seen as one, is revered as one of the best verses in rap history. Melly Mel wrote that. A child is born with no state of mind, blind to the ways of mankind. God is smiling on you, but he's frowning too, because only God knows what you go. Again, the genius of Sylvia making it very, very relevant to this conversation. Nobody wanted to do it, but she almost made them do that record, literally. Mm-hmm. Like, she said, somebody's got to do this record. This record's going to be huge. When they recorded the musical track, it came out to 7 minutes and 11 seconds. If you look on the record, it says seven eleven. Again, she was in the numerology. When she saw that, she said, look, somebody's got to do this record. Seven eleven is going to be a huge hit. Again, she was right. And she wasn't always right. Some of her stuff she did, you know, it, it tanked. Mm-hmm. But the stuff that was right was very right. And it changed the entire music industry when she was right. So they do the song. Only only Melly Mel and, and Ed Fletcher, they put their vocals on it. They do it. The rest of the group didn't want to do it. And the song becomes literally, there's no Tupac subject matter wise. There's no Tupac. Mm-hmm. There's no public enemy. There's nobody who ever talked about the surroundings of their neighborhood on a rap record without the message. They were all heavily influenced by that song. There's no There's no social commentary on a rap record without the message. Yeah, it's like the first conscious song. You know, 100%, 100%. And like I said, you know, it, the Furious Five, the members that didn't want to do it, their exact words, even Melly Mel at first before, you know, he, he finally got on board. They said, nobody wants to bring their problems to the disco. Yeah. You know, I could see where they're coming from, you know, based, based on the success they had specifically, but you know, that fact that Sylvia pushed it and, you know, this song, like you said, it's like one of the most significant songs, not even just in hip hop, just in the history of the recording industry. I mean, it's, we, we go back to it all the time and it's been interpreted over and over. Rolling Stone magazine on their, on their list of top, I think 200 rap records is number one on the top of 500 greatest songs ever was like 50 something. 
ever, you know, Beatles ever, right, including everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was the song that made adults finally say, Hey, that rap stuff might be around for a while. They finally accepted it. Groups like the Commodores, you know, a big R and B group and, um, you know, respected groups like that when, because Grandmaster Flash and Furious Five was able to open up for these kind of groups. Rick, they, they were very good friends with Rick James and a lot of the funk groups. And these pe- those artists who did not like rap at all, because remember, rappers outside the Sugar Hill Gang, rappers didn't have a band. They would just come up there with a mm-hmm. DJ that had two records, and they would get laughed off the stage by music. Imagine you're a musician. You went to school for music. You play several instruments. Here comes a group and a D- with a DJ with two records, and they, they would laugh at him. Where's the band? They finally gave props to Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, and groups like that told them, hey, man, I don't like rap, but that record right there, that's the truth. So yeah, they 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 literally changed the game with that, and it's the reason they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They did some great things, but you know, let's be very honest. Without the message, there's no Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for those guys. I think they're you're in right, the Grammy, yeah. they're in the Grammy Hall of Fame. They're in the uh, Library of Congress uh, archives, along with like Edison and people like that who changed popular culture. They're in those places. The the message is in those places. Well, and you know, it's interesting. You look at like the message versus rapper's delight just like the juxtaposition of those two because one is like you say a silly upbeat party song full of like themes that kids can relate to and stuff like that and then you have the message which is kind of like the other end of the spectrum or like the other side of the coin of just like this is a serious like subject matter it's reality um but it also still slaps like the the actual like record itself is undeniable like it is still hits you in a different way. And, you know, I think that like those two songs that are just such formative, they are the genesis of hip hop and rap music, which is like the dominant cultural force right now. That's like the genesis, those two sides of that one coin, all both on the same label, kind of both from this same, from the you same know, woman. from the same woman. woman. Um, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Melly Mel who's a good, a good friend of mine. I've, I've made some music with Melly Mel. Um, I'm doing a documentary on the message. He's part, you know, he's part of my documentary. He always says that Sylvia Robinson is the best rap producer and one of the best producers, period, in music. I agree with him. Master G of the Sugar Hill Gang, who I'm, I'm friends with as well, he always tells me we couldn't have pulled that record off. He says she wanted us to do it, but we were too clean cut. You know, they, they were all American. They enunciated their words. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they weren't, quote unquote, uh, urban or ghetto, quote unquote, ghetto enough to pull that record off. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five were from the Bronx and they really, they had seen that broken glass and people pissing on the stairs. Mm-hmm. You know, the Sugar Hill Gang, they were from Jersey. They came up in two parent households, very well-spoken, very well-presenting when they talked to, you know, Don Cornelius of Soul Train or, you know, uh, when they got on American Bandstand and talked to Dick Clark. They were from the gutter that the song talked about. Mm-hmm. So you're right, the juxtaposition of that one is on this end of the spectrum and one is on the other. I totally agree with you. Yeah. I mean, and that's a that's a solid case for Rock Hall. Well, it's like that song in know. and of itself. Like the way that you say, like, you know, you look at the message and you're like, there you go. That's why you get in the Rock Hall. It's the same thing for like this Sylvia Robertson, Robinson case. It's like you if she had done nothing else but ensure that the message got made, you're still right there. Solid case for induction. Like she's done even more than that. But it's like there are those things where you're like, oh, yeah, without this 
to point to like that is the you know foundation which the case for this induction is built a hundred percent and what i what i always say about her you know one thing i don't like you know I, i've done several videos on her you know on my youtube channel and i'll get comments like well yeah she was okay but if she hadn't have done it somebody else would have done it you know that's always a uh, funny but they didn't but they that's didn't. What, you know <laughs> like, that's like, what like they, they say about art art people go into a museum they say oh i could have done that but you but didn't, you didn't. Right, and like Ford, you know, if Ford didn't invent the, you know, the Model T or whatever the first car was, or if, you know, the, the person who's credited with the light bulb, if they didn't mm -hmm. do it, somebody might have, but they didn't do it. So, mm -hmm. you, and, and the thing is, others had chances to do it. You had Bobby Robinson. Exactly. You had, Paul, mm -hmm. you had Paul Winley. Yeah, so in 1970, by the end of 1979, there were no less than 20 rap records out. You never heard them, but you heard Rap's Delight. Today, my children, who are, are not children anymore, they're in their 20s, but they know all the words to the 15 minute version. A 15 minute song, you know every word, but they don't know the words to the songs of these people who are saying, oh, somebody else would have done it. You know, clearly mm -hmm. somebody else wouldn't have, so. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to say about Sylvia Robinson? I mean, the label closed in, in 1986. I would say the message is probably like the kind of peak of their powers, both Sylvia and the and the label and you know Grandmaster sure, Flash, sure. but you know that mm -hmm. was, uh, you know uh, they nearly did a distribution deal with MCA. It didn't work, and then the clay, the label right. was, was yeah. done yeah, by '86. It, yeah. it, it did, yeah, it did. It didn't work. I mean, you know, they are, you know, she did definitely. MCA was doing the distribution on the records, but it didn't. You know, it lasted from probably '84 to '85, about a year. Mm -hmm. um, what I like to say is just a little extra stuff. At one point, she owned she owned the rights to chess records, and mm. chess oh. records was a big deal. A lot of blues artists, you know, on chess records, uh, people like you know How Howlin' Wolf, I believe, might have put some out on chess. Muddy Waters, Etta James, who made that last, she was on chess records. At one point in the '80s, Sylvia Robinson owned the rights to all of those songs, and was really slick. And I noticed as a collector of Sugar Hill memorabilia and things of that nature, there are copies of. Etta James records on Sugar Hill records. She would just re-release them. Like in 84, she put out an Etta James album on Sugar Hill. And, but you're used to, when you see that blue Candy Stripe logo, you're used to it being a rap album. Mm -hmm. yeah. But, you know, um, and, and and she did vice versa. She she re-released Sugar Hill Gang records on Chess Records. Um, she also owned the rights to all of the speeches by Malcolm X at one point. You know, oh, wow. in the 70s, after he got assassinated, she was releasing those uh, speeches on vinyl. Um, you know, she did so much, but I, the template for rap recordings, even the fact that, you know, the first rap recordings had a short version on the A side and a, a mm -hmm. long version on the B side, then later the instrumental on Instrumental one side. if you're lucky, yeah. Right. You know, so um, those were things that she had great success at, and they weren't six, things that would have worked before she did them. And that's, again, she really could have been inducted into the hall as a performer. She was that great as a performer. But, you know, it's good that somebody noticed her works as a label owner and producer, because, again, Sugar Hill was definitely the Motown of that time. And if the building hadn't burned down in the 2000s when it burned down, I, I would have loved to see it been a museum much like what, what Motown is today, where you mm -hmm. can walk in yeah. and see the actual stuff. But I've made the pilgrimage there. I've been to where that building stood, and I reached through the gate that's kind of like still closed off and I got a piece of the floor. <laughs> There's a yeah. piece of the floor. You have truly done a pilgrimage. You got I respect pizza, it. You grab a piece yeah. of the floor. This is good. 
And I and actually I bought a pizza from um Crispy Crust on Palisade. I'm giving them a, a free plug. I need to call them to see if I can get a check. <laughs> on Palisades <laughs> Avenue, Crispy Crust Pizza is very good pizza. So yeah, so that's what Worth I can say. More than the nostalgia. Pizza. It's actually legit good pizza. Yeah, yeah. Aside <laughs> from the fact that, you know, the whole rap industry kicked off from there, literally. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Incredible. I love it. I love the devotion. Appreciate and I, it. I appreciate having someone as devoted as you to join us for this episode to talk about Sylvia. Uh, this this was really great. So thank you so much for for joining us. Thank you for having me. Much appreciated. And I want to give you the opportunity to plug whatever it is you'd like. I know you mentioned a message documentary that's in the works. Uh, also, the stuff you put out on your YouTube channel. Whatever you'd like to get out there now is your chance. All right. Well, I appreciate that. Um, you can reach me on all social media at Jayquan, J-A-Y-Q-U-A-N. Uh, you can, <laughs> I'm thinking because I changed some of them. Um, <laughs> on Instagram is Jayquan underscore hip hop historian. If you put in Jayquan, it'll populate the hip hop historian part. But you can reach me just about anywhere under Jayquan. Again, J-A-Y-Q-U-A-N. Not YouTube. to be confused with the rapper Jaquan. Not, not, not at all. Not, different, not at all. Right, different yeah. spelling. Getting, getting tipsy. It's funny because I had, you know, I had that name for so long when I saw him with it. I'm like, oh gosh. Here we go. Mm-hmm. You're like, hopefully he doesn't stick around for too long. <laughs> right. I'm doing a documentary called um, "The Message Is 40" because this year was the 40th anniversary of the message, and um, I'm looking forward to it. And, and 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 once it's done, which will definitely be this year, you'll be able to uh, see the trailer and check it out. You know, on any of those platforms. Excellent. So cool. That yeah, that's that's amazing. Looking forward to that. And our listeners Thanks. know they can follow us at Rock Hall Pod on Twitter and Instagram, RockHallPod at gmail.com is our email address. Uh, if you want Kristen to see your message, you need to designate that somewhere in your email. Otherwise, I'm not going to forward it because she is not interested. Uh, subscribe and to us. that's the message. And that's our me. message. <laughs> uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Rate and review us five stars only. Anything less would be rude and cruel, and you wouldn't want to do that to us. Uh, thank you to Mike Lloyd for the logo. Thank you to Yusu Kim for the music. Uh, you know, thanks to Ben Merlis for the the tip to talk to UJ. Oh, yeah. Uh, thanks, yeah. Ben. Up, Hi, Ben. What's yeah. up? Yeah. What's up, Ben? Yes, indeed. Thank you, Ben. This has been nice. This has and, been nice. Uh, and thank you to Pantheon Podcast for hosting us. I'm Joe Quazala. I'm Kristen Studdard. And who cares about the Rock Hall? It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com 
code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 